I'm glad you guys are here. If you would, go ahead and turn with me to the first um, chapter of Acts. We are going to start today um, a new sermon series for the spring and summer through the book of Acts. Um, so we are going to talk a lot about how the Holy Spirit and how God used men and all of these things, just like this video has said. But before we get there, um, before we start with the text, um, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. <coughs> Excuse me. Father, we come to you this morning <clears throat> asking that you would be in this place, that you would send your Spirit, that as we sang just a few moments ago, that your Spirit would flood this atmosphere, that everyone here would know that you are in our midst, that it would be not just an emotional feeling or we'd get goosebumps, but that we would know that the Almighty God is in here with us, worshiping with us because we are worshiping Him. I pray that as I speak this morning, um, that I would keep in mind, I am just a man, a sinful man. I pray that you would set me aside and speak your words so that it is not my opinions or anything that I've come up with, but it is that your word speaking through me, that I would serve as nothing but a conduit for your spirit to speak to these people. I pray that you would open hearts and minds. I pray that you would sanctify the believer, and I pray that you would save the non-believer in this place, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, so Acts chapter 1, as we've just read, um, we are going to begin this sermon series. And before you guys freak out and go, well, it took us two years and a half to go through Romans, and it has 16 chapters. Acts has 28. I'm going to do the math. It's going to take it. It's going to make your head hurt, first of all. Don't do the math. We're not going to preach through Acts the same way we did through Romans, verse by verse and word by word. So we're going to try to do this in 16 weeks. It's a lofty goal. But we're going to try to hit the high points. So part of it is going to be incumbent upon you to read the book of Acts Monday through Saturday when we're not up here teaching it. Because we're not going to hit every word of Acts. And it's not going to look good if you're like, now who is this guy again? I, did I, is he in the book of Acts? You need to know some of the backstory because we're not going to hit it all. We're going to try to talk it through. But we're going to hit the high points and look at what God is doing to build His church. But we were going to do a, a different sermon series, but we felt like it was God's sovereignty. Once again, we have a high view of that here. That we had just finished the parables of Jesus. That led us directly into the triumphal entry. And that led us directly into Easter. And I think many times we look at Easter because it's such a big deal for us as Christians, which it should be, that that's kind of the ending point or the, the landing strip. That's what Pastor and Eric have talked uh, this week about. Too many times we view... Easter Sunday as the landing strip, and it's really the launching pad. This is really where the story begins. Now, the story is absolutely about Jesus, and the story continues to be about Jesus, but his death does not serve as the end of the story. His resurrection does not serve as the end of the story, and his ascension does not serve as the end of the story, as we will see here today and in the next 15 weeks. But again, we thought this is perfect timing. We're not in the middle of a sermon series. This is how it happened. Easter Sunday and then the book of Acts. This is perfect chronological order if you want to go that route. So that is why we chose to do this. This is going to serve kind of like a now what? Because I feel like that's what the disciples were asking. I feel like sometimes in our lives, individually and corporately as a church, that's also what we're asking. Now what? What does God want us to do? And here at Mission Church, we want to be as obedient as possible to the mission that God has given us. We want to be obedient as possible in all that we endeavor to do to worship Him first and foremost and to go about making disciples of all nations via His Spirit, via His power, via His will, and via His desires. 
So that's what we're going to look at, and I think the book of Acts can tell us how to do that somewhat. Now, we're not going to follow everything they do in the book of Acts to a T, uh, because if you read ahead a few, a few uh, verses, uh, we're going to have to get dice out next week to see who preaches, because that's what they did here when they had to choose the next disciple, got the craps table out, <laughs> blew the dice and rolled it and sit to see who it came up on. We're probably not going to do that, because then it would end up being Bostwick up here preaching, and who knows what she might say. So... We, uh, we're not going to follow every little thing that w they do in the book of Acts. Some of these things are prescriptive. Some of these things are descriptive as to what happened. Some of them are prescriptive in the way of this is how you should do it. We will pick up on a lot of those things. So as we get started and as we move forward, we need to keep that in mind. Let us look for, as we preach and teach and read through the book of Acts, notice I said read again, that we... Look how God accomplishes His purposes. Not how men accomplished building the church, but how God accomplished it. We have the assurance that it is not incumbent upon Mission Church to do it the right way. We, yes, we need to be obedient, but in essence, it is the Holy Spirit carrying us along. It is the Holy Spirit bringing the, the fruit. It is the Holy Spirit saving and sanctifying people. And in no way does God depend on us to do it right or His plans are thwarted? And we must keep that in mind as we look through much persecution, many signs and wonders that God is going to do in the book of Acts. We will get to some of those um, as we go. But we, we remember the words that um, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. Peter has just said, Jesus is the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And Jesus says, that's good. The Spirit has shown you this. And on this rock, I will build my church. Not Peter, not the disciples, not the apostles, and no one else, and definitely not us. I, Jesus, will build my church. And because God is an unstoppable God, as the slide showed earlier, because He is unstoppable, these persecutions, none of these things are going to stop what God is doing. He is going to make the church flourish. So, let us move forward. The first thing I want you to do is look in your Bibles, a novel idea, at the title of the book of Acts. Most, if not all of you, are going to have the title in your, in your Bible, the Acts of the Apostles. Check it out. It may or may not say that. I'm not going to go into that again like I did a few weeks ago and get all confused. Most of them are going to say Acts of the Apostles. If you write in your Bible, if you don't mind doing that, if it's your Bible, uh, and some of you have electronic Bibles, it's going to be very tough. But if you have your Bible and you don't mind writing in it, I want you to cross out apostles and write in Holy Spirit. I don't know why they titled the book that way. I understand that the apostles are doing a lot of the work. But this book is about the act of God via the Holy Spirit that we have just talked about in, in the Scripture that He is going to send, that He has promised. It is the Holy Spirit's work. It is all about God. It is all about Jesus, and it is all about His Spirit interacting with them and then interacting with us to carry us along and to accomplish His purposes. Not our purposes, but His. And today we will eventually look at how the Holy Spirit gives us power, as we see here in this Scripture, purpose, and a plan, and how that ultimately fits into what God is already doing. We see in the opening words of Acts a looking back. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus. So the first book, first of all, just for a little history lesson in case no one in here knows. 
It is the Gospel of Luke. So Luke has written a two-volume set. Acts or Luke and Acts go together. They were probably not even separated back when he wrote them, but we separate them in our Bible because Luke, Luke is a gospel. We have three other gospels, all of those things. But it was written as a two-volume set to be an accurate depiction of what has happened in Jesus' life and ministry and then the early church after Jesus has ascended. Uh, Luke is actually very well respected, even by secular critics. The secular critics may not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They may not believe that he did anything to save the world. They may not even believe that he actually came back from the dead. But these secular critics will still praise and laud uh, Luke for being very accurate in geography and times and dates and a lot of settings. So this is an accurate depiction Obviously, if you believe the Bible, we believe it to be a very accurate depiction without error, without any flaw whatsoever. But even secular critics would say that. And that is what he's trying to do. He's trying to tell us what happened, how God built his church after Jesus ascended. And it also reiterates that this is just the beginning. We talked about how this should be a launching pad. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Not finish. Not not Jesus is done, so we're done. He left, we're done here, this is as big as the church is ever going to get. This is what Jesus began to do and teach, and the Spirit is going to come and carry us along so that we can finish what Jesus has started. And then it says that Jesus has has appeared to them by many proofs. Now how exactly did this resurrection prove anything? I understand coming back from the dead is a big deal, but didn't Lazarus just do that a few chapters ago? Didn't Jesus raise a few people in Scripture? And yet no one, well, I won't say no one, many people still didn't believe. Even after those miracles, he raised people from the dead. Many people were like, no, still not the Messiah. So how does this one differ? How is his, his coming back from the dead any different from those? And why should people go, you know what? That is proof that he is the Messiah. Well, let's look. First of all, Jesus is clearly alive. If you turn back to Luke, which is, the, again, the first part of this, in the last chapter, we won't read it all, but it's Luke 24, 39 through 43. Paraphrase, Jesus comes into the room. We're not sure how he gets in there because it even specifies that the door was locked. I don't know. I guess he just morphed through the wall, which I think is awesome if we get to do that. But anyway, that's beside the point. So Jesus comes into the room. They're startled, and they think, oh, the Spirit of Jesus is alive. The Spirit Jesus is here with us. This is awesome. And he says to them, does a spirit have flesh? Does a spirit have a body? And furthermore, I'm really hungry. Give me some of that fish. That's actually true, that he does say that. He eats the fish. And then they go, oh, well, if he's eating, he must be real. So he's clearly physically alive, not just spiritually alive. Now this physical aliveness as I'm going to call it, because that's not a word, proves that Jesus is deity, which he claimed to be many times during his ministry. Now, how does that prove anything? How does, okay, so he's back from the dead, cool. He's physically alive, cool. He told us kind of that would happen. But this proves that he is deity. Again, why? Okay, John 5, 17 and 18. My father and I, he's talking to the Jews at the time, they get mad at him, and he said, they say he is equating himself with God by saying that he is the Son of God because he says, my Father. Okay, so John eight fifty eight. before Abraham was, I am. 
saying, I am God. He is calling Himself by the name of God. Every Jew that had ever lived back then would have known that I am means God. That is the name God gave Moses in the burning bush. How are they supposed to know that you sent me? Tell them I am sent you. This is the name of God and Jesus is saying, that's me. I am God. We are the same. John 14, 9. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Again, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Why? Because we are the same. We are the same being. We are both God. And then most clearly in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. The Jews tried to kill him at that point too because he was saying he was equal with the Father. But it's very clear that Jesus claimed, I am God in his ministry. Many times atheists will say, well, he never actually said that. Well, he said it tons of times. This is just a few scriptures that we can go with. But he clearly, that's why the Jews wanted to kill him. Because he was saying over and over and over again, I am God. I am the Son of God. I am God. We are one. So these claims, you can look at them one of two ways. They're either true or they're not. There is no middle ground. Well, maybe he's kind of God, but not really quite God. There is no gray area there. He left no room for discussion. It's either true, you believe it, or it's not, and you don't. Those are the two options. So, when he comes back to life... This proves that God obviously believes that He is God because He told them in Matthew 17, 22 and 23, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to evil men. They are going to kill me and then God is going to raise me on the third day. This is how you will know that I am the Messiah. So He has set this up during His ministry. This is not just He came back to life and everybody was like, oh, well, He must be God. He's, he's set this up quite a few times. I am God I am alive, even after they killed me, I have come back from the dead, and it is because God has raised me on the third day. I'm sure at the time of him saying that, many people thought he was just even crazier. Oh, yeah, sure God's going to raise you on the third day. But then it happened. If he had been lying, God wouldn't have raised him from the dead. He would have left him dead, proving that he wasn't the Messiah, and then we wouldn't be here today. But it did happen, so the apostles are looking at it like, okay, he has now proven for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that He is God. He is the Messiah. So now what? Okay, He's pre proven that you should believe His words. If His most outlandish claims are true, which telling people you're God and that you're going to die and come back on, in three days are pretty outlandish, if those things are true, then we can easily believe the less outlandish things that He said. And He has told them through, through this scripture, we see that he is telling them, I promise you a helper is coming. I promise you you are going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. I promise you that you are going to receive this Spirit and it is going to spur you forward. This is why basically from this point, we see the disciples go from a bunch of idiots who screw everything up to a brazen proclaimers of the gospel who are willing to die for, for this message. And most of them do die for this message. But they, just a few chapters ago, they were running when Jesus got arrested saying, I don't, I don't know that guy at all. I, I've never seen him before in my life. I do not know him. Oh, you're taking him up to the cross. We're going to go anywhere else. We're not going to watch that. John was the only one who followed him up to the actual cross. All the other ones were running scared. And yet, from this point forward, from what we were looking at today, all of a sudden they become these great men of God planting churches, winning believers, 3,000 at one time, 5,000 at another all of a sudden willing to die for this. Why? Well, we're going to look at that today. So what should they do until this promise is fulfilled? So God has prom or Jesus has promised them 
that this Spirit is coming. He ordered them, verse 4, not to depart from Jerusalem. So do nothing, apparently. Just stay where you're at. Which, this reminds me of one of those test questions. Some of the college kids in here are probably going to be bitter about this. When you get, pick the best answer. Which one is not, da-da-da-da, and then you forget to read the word not, and then you pick the wrong answer, and later on you're like, oh, not, I swear, I hate that word. That happened to me a few weeks ago, and I'm, I am bitter about it. But anyway, so as you can tell, I have not let it go. But you read this, and you're like, tell them not to depart from Jerusalem. Are, are we reading this correctly? Because in Matthew 28, the last time he speaks to the disciples, he tells them, what does he say? This church has been founded upon this verse. What does he tell them in Matthew 28? Go and make disciples of all nations. Go. That's the key word there. Now he's saying, don't go. Stay here. Don't move. Considering the audience is the apostles, they were probably lost because we've talked about how dull they are when it comes to figuring out what Jesus is actually saying. So they were probably like, but you, Jesus, you just told us to go. Now we don't know what to do. So what else did he say to them at the end of Matthew? He says, behold. So he says, go make disciples of all nations baptizing in the name of the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you always, right? It's a pretty profound statement. Jesus is going to be with us always. And five seconds later, he leaves. He's going to be with us always. I can't wait. That is going to be awesome. Wait, where are you going? Floats up to heaven. Ascension. See ya. I don't know if he was waving at them, but I always picture that he is. Fly. I don't know. But it seems like uh, everybody in here has graduated from high school. I think, well, except my beautiful daughter there. But everybody remember that day? Ugly crying all day. I can't believe this is happening. You knew it was coming for four years. I don't know why you're so upset. But I can't believe you're not going to be friends anymore. You're telling everybody you're going to stay in touch. We'll never not be friends ever again. I'm going to keep in touch. You, tell, you write in people's yearbooks, the ones you know, you write them a page. The other ones, you're like, stay sweet, meaning I don't know you well enough to say anything, but hey, you're sweet, so whatever, stay sweet. I, what does that even mean? It means I don't know you, get out of my face. That's what that means. So if you have that written in your yearbook anywhere, that's what they were saying to you. You're welcome. And then you write, everybody's your BFF, but instead of best friends forever, it stands for best friends for this summer until we go to different colleges and never speak again. That's what the last F actually stands for in BFF in your yearbooks. But basically, it takes one summer to rid all these people of your life. You hang out for the summer because you're still in whatever town you're from. Then you go off to different colleges and you don't speak again. I talked to one person from my high school and we were friends since we were four. One person. I don't know what, other than Facebook vagueness, which they want to put, you know, whatever the best part of their life, not the worst. So I don't know what they're really doing. But other than Facebook, I don't know what any people from high school are doing. And yet, I'm sure I told numerous people, man, we're going to be best friends forever. I can't wait till we do this, blah, blah, blah. Is, it, is that what Jesus is doing? He tells the disciples, I'm going to be with you always. By the way, see ya. I'm out later. I mean, it's literally like 30 seconds from when he says it. Or it seems that way in Scripture, if you read Scripture that way. I don't know, maybe it was days. But either way, he said, I will be with you always. And he does, in fact, leave. So that begs the question, is what did Jesus mean? Is he schizophrenic? Is he a liar? Is he a bad leader? 
Is he just changing his mind? What, what is Jesus saying by saying, I will be with you always, and then clearly he is not with them always in bodily form? Well, it shows us that he knows he is later going to send his very spirit to the disciples to carry out his power, his purpose, and his plan. And this is the same spirit that he promises to give us. As believers, this is the same spirit he promised the apostles that he is promising us today. Now, until he keeps his promise, until the Holy Spirit comes, is how long they are supposed to stay. So he tells them, stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes and then unleash. Go everywhere you go. John 14, 16, Jesus in his ministry has told them ahead of time that this is how it's going to go down. Again, I don't know that the disciples picked up on it clearly enough, but in John 14, 16, he says, And I will ask my Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. John 16, 7, again, Jesus in his ministry speaking to the disciples. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You get this sense that the Holy Spirit is up in heaven just waiting, like shaking Send me, Father. I want it to go unleash your church and unleash your people and give them the power to do what you have willed and desired to do from all eternity. Please, 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 is it my time? Is it my time? Is it my time? But he knows via his role in the Godhead that he has to wait for Jesus to do his earthly ministry and to return, and then he can send the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand the Holy Spirit is a touchy subject before we even get started here, especially in Southern Baptist land, which is we are deep in right now. Okay, so when we say the things like baptized in the Holy Spirit, like verse 5 says here, we just say the words baptized in the Holy Spirit. There may be some people here that are like, it's about time. We're going to unleash on these people. We're going to bark like dogs, run up and down the aisles. Let's do this, Pastor. And then the other people are sitting there thinking, man, I hope nobody barks like a dog or runs up and down the aisles because that would be the worst thing that could possibly happen you got two different perspectives here. And when you talk about the Holy Spirit, it doesn't seem to have any middle ground. There doesn't seem to be anybody going, yeah, a little bit of Holy Spirit would be cool. I don't know. Like, no barking, but if you want to run up and down the aisles a little bit, you know, it's fine with me. There doesn't seem to be any middle ground. Now, having said all of that, we are not going to flesh out those details here today. Um, this sermon series is probably not going to flesh out those details to your satisfaction, if that's something you're very interested in. We are focusing on how the unstoppable God has built His church. Now, will we talk about gifts of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely, because they are in here. Will we talk about signs and wonders and whether the power of the Holy Spirit in us gives us the power to do those things? We will discuss that some. But that is not the focus of this sermon series. So, if that's something you're interested in, by all means, come talk to us. We'll be glad to talk to you about it. But... This sermon series is going to have a little bit of a different focus. So, what we have to come to realize when we speak of God is that He is a triune God. He can do anything. He sees everything. He is everywhere. He can see, do, or think anything that He wants. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all of those things. He is triune. When we speak of God the Holy Spirit, when we speak of God the Son, when we speak of God the Father separately, we are still speaking of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-everything being. 
The only thing they're not at that point is triune because we're talking about them separately, but they are still triune because they are still God. I know that makes, makes sense, but this is what we have to come to realize. When we speak of the Holy Spirit, we are not thinking or talking about a lesser being than the Godhead. It's not like Captain Planet where with our powers combined and Holy Spirit showed up late and got heart because nobody likes hearts. Everybody got earth, wind, and fire or whatever they're called and then heart shows up. What? Heart's the only thing left? If you get that joke, you're awesome. Anyway, this is not how it goes. It is not a powers combined type thing. They all have the same power. The only reason they don't show it is because they have different roles in the Godhead. God the Father is responsible for certain things. God the Son is responsible for certain things. And God the Spirit is responsible for certain things. And because they are perfect, they never don't do what they're supposed to do, so the other ones don't have to pick up the slack of the other two. Does that make sense? I hope so, because it made sense in my head. But because they are perfect, they never have to step outside of their roles. So the Holy Spirit has been given a role, and this is what he does. It doesn't mean it's because he's less than. It means because this is his role. Too many times we forget about him, and it is him, Holy Spirit, him, not it. It's not a thing. It is a him. It is a person of the Godhead. Francis Chan, guy I very much respect, wrote an entire book about the Holy Spirit. It's called Forgotten God. If you're interested in the Holy Spirit, I would highly recommend it. It is very biblically based, very thorough. Sadly, though, I do believe the Holy Spirit is rarely understood correctly. He's either overemphasized to be the only focal point in every gathering and everything has to be this Holy Spirit shows himself out and everybody speaks in tongues and everybody interprets and prophesies and all of those things no matter what you're doing. If your car starts when it wouldn't start yesterday, it's because the Holy Spirit's in your battery and all of those things. Or it's, he's nothing. We don't talk about him. I grew up in the Church of Christ Church and he, he wasn't discussed. Uh, we didn't bring him up. Nobody raised their hands in worship. I don't know why. Couldn't do that though. There wasn't a written rule. Just nobody did it. So it's either one or the other. And what we want to do today is remind ourselves, first of all, that He is the one in our midst today. We just sang a song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. He is the one with us today. He is the one in our midst when we gather. He is the one indwelling us as we go. Doesn't mean Jesus and God are out of the picture and sitting up in heaven doing nothing. This means that the Holy Spirit is the one. His role is to interact with His people. Let's take a look at some of the passages that tell us his role. So we see here that he is to equip us. John 14, 16, And I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper. Okay, so we will get into some of the specifics of how the Holy Spirit helps us and equips us here in a few moments. But he is clearly called the helper. That word is capitalized in John 14, 16 because he is speaking of the Holy Spirit. He is there to empower us. John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So Jesus has done many miracles and signs, and he is saying, because of the Holy Spirit, you are going to do greater things than I. Again, we're not going to flesh out exactly what that means here today, but it does clearly show us that the Holy Spirit is coming to empower us to do the work of the Father. Romans 8.26, to give us strength. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So when life becomes too much for you, because God would never do that, right? 
He does, very much so. I would claim every day He gives us more than we can handle, but that's beside the point. When life becomes hard and we don't know what to do or where to turn, the Holy Spirit is there to strengthen us. The Holy Spirit is there to comfort us. The Holy Spirit is there to give us hope. The Holy Spirit is there to lead us, to guide us, to show us the way. It is the Holy Spirit that gives us strength from day to day. In that same verse, Romans 8, 26, He is there to pray for us. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We don't even know what we really want or need. There are many prayers that I can't thank God enough He didn't answer, like marrying that girl that I thought I was in love with in sixth grade. I'm pretty excited I'm not married to that girl and that I'm married to this one. But I was praying for it in sixth grade. God, please, I just want to be her boyfriend. I know, I'm lame. Anyway, so... Anybody else glad that he didn't answer all your prayers? Nobody? Nobody's going to admit to that? All right, fine. Whatever, guys. All right, last thing, John 6, 63, to give life. This is the Holy Spirit's role. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no use at all. We are spiritually dead in our sins. That has been shown to us in Scripture over and over and over again. We are dead in our sins, and it is the Spirit who brings life. It is the Spirit who saves us by faith in Jesus Christ, but that faith is only made possible by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So we see here just a few of the roles of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to look specifically how that plays out in our lives. Let's look at Acts 1, verse 8. Many and most theologians would agree that this is basically the thesis of the book of Acts. This is what the point of Acts is. It is to spur us on to this now. It was to spur the disciples on to it then. So Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. So we just saw the power Jesus is referring to in the many roles of the of the Spirit. We are equipped, empowered, given strength, prayed for, and given life strictly by Holy Spirit power. But to what end? So that's the power. So what is the purpose? Why? Why is God giving us this power? Why is God indwelling us with His Spirit? And it says right there, to be my, Jesus talking, my witnesses. You will now, via the Holy Spirit, go and tell people who I, Jesus, am what i have done what i am doing witnesses for jesus now an interesting word study here the the greek word for witness is martus i don't know if i'm pronouncing that correct either way it's where we get the word martyr so jesus is telling them in very clear language they would have very much understood it this way the holy spirit is giving you power to go and die for me to tell my message it may not mean physical death every time, but die to yourself. Stop insisting upon your way and go my way. The Spirit will give you the power to be the witness that you need to be so that I, Jesus, can build my church. And it is the same Spirit that we have today. And we see that this is true in the disciples' deaths. Many of them are beheaded, hung, hung upside down, burned, all of those things. Because the Holy Spirit gave them power to stick to their guns. And that's the same Spirit we have here today. But we see over and over again in the book of Acts, through much, much, much persecution, that day by day, God was adding to His church, adding to His number. So, we are commanded to play our part. It is the Holy Spirit doing the work, not us. Get it through your head that you specifically do not matter. He can do this with the chairs if He needs to. 
God can do anything. He does not need us to be a part of His plan, and yet He commands us and tells us that we are going to be a part of His plan. So how does this verse, Acts 1-8, give us a plan? We see the instruction to go. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. I know what you're all thinking. I've never been to Jerusalem. I don't even know where Samaria is. So how am I supposed to do all of those things today? Well, if you look at a map of the world at that time, it becomes pretty clear what he's telling us to do. He was telling them specifically, go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. This is where the prescriptive and descriptive becomes relevant. He is prescriptive in telling the disciples, go to Jerusalem because that's where you are. Go to Judea and Samaria because that's where you know people. And then go all over the earth. It is descriptive for us because we can look at it this way. Jerusalem, Bowling Green, Kentucky. It's where you already live. It's the city in which you live. It's the city in which you know people. It's the city in which your friends, your family are already located. You're already doing life there. You're working there. You're going to basketball games there. You're going to college there. You're going wherever you're doing. It's in Bowling Green. You can look at Judea and think Kentucky. This is a little bit of a larger context. It's obviously our state, but you still know people. I know people in Lexington and Louisville. I know people in Frankfurt. I know people all over the state of Kentucky that I can call, text, or write to at any point all the time because I'm from here. I know them, even though I may not see them every day. You can think of Samaria as the United States. It's the whole country. Do I know everybody in the country? No, but they pretty much speak my language. I can pretty much talk to almost anybody in the United States, at least somewhat. 90% at least. They at least speak some enough English, so we are the same type of people. That doesn't mean we're the same color or any of those things, but we would understand things similarly. Got that out right. And then, to the ends of the earth. I'm not going to insult your intelligence by explaining that that means everywhere else. Okay? Ends of the earth means ends of the earth. This is the prescriptive plan. Start where you already are. How easy is that? You're already doing these things. You're already going to work and play and whatever else you're doing in Bowling Green. Just talk to people about Jesus while you do it. Become a witness. Be a witness via the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't even have to do it on your own. Just tap into the power the Holy Spirit is already giving you. And this is what Jesus is telling them to wait or why Jesus is telling them to wait. Because he knows that if they go out alone, it's going to end up a disaster. Just like it will end up a disaster for us if we go out thinking we can conquer the world by our own power, not relying on the Spirit at all. But we also know that if we do rely on the Spirit, we can do nothing but succeed. Because God is an unstoppable God. We have discussed that the Holy Spirit is God. He is not going to fail. Even... If you're terrible at it, if you're a terrible witness for who Jesus is, but your heart is in the right place and you are relying on the Holy Spirit power, you cannot fail. You will only succeed. Now, does that mean that everybody you talk to is going to come to Christ? Is that what success is? Absolutely not. Not everybody listened to Jesus, so I don't know why we expect everybody to listen to us. But be a witness. Go tell the ends of the earth. He can pick and choose who he uses. We must get that the Bible is one redemptive story of God's work. It is not about the specific characters of the Bible other than Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit. You know what? The deaths of Abraham, Moses, David, Jacob, Joseph, any big name you can think of in Scripture. Do you know what they all have in common besides that they all stayed dead? That's obviously an obvious one, but 
They got one verse. Every one of them. Look it up. Go to Moses. Go to Abraham. It says, and Moses died. Moving on. Abraham breathed his last. Moving on. The story continues because it ain't about them. In contrast, the Passion Week of Christ is 33% of Matthew. It is 37% of the book of Mark. It is 25% the book of Luke. And it is 42% of John. His death meant something. His death proved something. His death is who we are witnesses of. His resurrection is who we are witnesses of. It does not matter who else did anything. He doesn't have to be named Abraham. Now, should you know about those people? Absolutely, because I think everything points forward to Jesus, and it is very cool when you see the connections that you didn't see before. Please study your Bible. That's my PSA for the day. But why do they get one verse? Because it's all about Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. So why does the Holy Spirit indwell us and give us special power? So that we can become witnesses of what Jesus has done. That's it. That's it. That is the end and the beginning of the story. So we can tell people about Jesus. This is what Jesus told them to wait for. So the Holy Spirit, because we are terrible witnesses, the Holy Spirit is a perfect witness. If we wait for Him to be the witness inside of us, then we cannot fail. He is the perfect witness, not us. He tells us to wait, and then he very explicitly tells us, get to work. You even see this when Jesus ascends. We read that uh, at the end of the book of Luke. So Jesus is ascending, something that I wish I could have seen because that would have been awesome. And the angels that are standing there give them about 20 seconds to stand in awe of Jesus floating to heaven. And then they're like, what are you doing? Uh, get to work. He left it's on you guys now because the Holy Spirit is coming. Get to work. Stop staring up at the sky. And I feel like that's what we're doing today. We're staring up at the sky. Or we're sitting on our hands saying, well, if God can do it and He can use anyone, then He doesn't have to use me. And if you think that, then you're missing the point. It is not about the disciples. It is about God. And He is going to accomplish His work. But we are called to put our hands to the plow and get to work. Be witnesses of what Jesus has done. George Ladd, was, uh, he's a pastor from back in the day. That's right, back in the day. Once he, said, once he was asked about the end times and when we should expect them and all of those things, and his response was, I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned, therefore the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms of our task. Our responsibility is to complete it. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete the mission. And this is what we are called to today. We must get to work, and we must do it with the correct tools. I helped Adam York built a fence this week. He would say I didn't help him much, and he would be correct. But I was there part of the time when I could be helping. We made 400 trips to the garage because we got out there. Oh, man, what? we don't have this thing. All right, let's go. And if you guys know Megan, she's a little paranoid about some things, so we had to close the garage every time we went in there and come back out. So it was like, hey, do you have the garage door opener? I got to go get 
some one nail, like one. So we would go in, go in there, get the right tools, come out and do the job. Oh, we forgot something else. Do you have the, do you have the button? Yep. Can you push it? All right. It's because we didn't have the right tools. We had them. We just had them anyway. But it, you can't do a job correctly without the right tools. And this is what God is saying. Wait until the Holy Spirit has come. We aren't waiting anymore. The Holy Spirit has come. He came during this time, we are no longer the disciples waiting in a room quietly hoping nobody finds us and kills us. We have the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Ephesians 5.18 tells us to be filled with the Spirit. So how do we do this? Now I'm going to quickly give you three easy ways to be filled with the Spirit. And I do mean quickly. These are not magic bullets where everybody around you is going to be saved. This, If you want to obey Scripture and be filled with the Spirit, these are three ways to get started. One, ask God to do it. It's plain and simple. John 14, 13 and 14, it, Jesus is talking. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So let us all leave here today and ask God the Father to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Or as it says in verse 5, to baptize us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why do we think he would not answer that request? We're not asking for a million dollars or $63 million for a jet. We are asking to do his work via the Holy Spirit. Fill us with the Spirit so we can go do your work. Why do we think God would not answer that request? It's because we aren't asking. It's because we probably are scared of what would happen if he did answer that request. Secondly, read your word. Be immersed in the Word of God. Not just so you will know some cool stuff or be able to win arguments or win debates, but so that you can know God more fully, worship Him more fully, and be a better and more willing witness to who He is. Because that is the point. That's why the Holy Spirit has come. So that we can be witnesses of who Jesus is. And thirdly, obey. Namely, go be a witness. Go tell somebody about the person and work of Jesus. Don't sit back there and think, well, I'm not good enough yet. I don't know enough yet. These people are mean. They make fun of me. Blah, blah, blah. It is the Holy Spirit doing the work. Go be a witness. Obey. And then, guess what? You'll learn from those experiences. And the next person you talk to, you might be a little bit better at it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit might be more fully in you at that time. Because God will answer this prayer. God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to talk to somebody that I know hates you. He has no relationship with you whatsoever, and he makes fun of me for having one. Fill me with the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to go talk to him. I know that's scary. I understand, and we should ask him to do it anyway. You have to ask yourself at this point, if I'm not being a witness, do I really have the Holy Spirit? Am I saved? I'm not here to scare you out of your salvation today because I don't, that's not the point. But I do want you to take stock. I do want you to think, if I am refusing to do what he has told me to do, how much do I really love him? How much could I love someone if they tell me to do this and I don't, I, I don't do it? I refuse to do it. Only you can answer that. But I do promise you that, you that this works. We will look at this more fully through the book of Acts. But proof that it works is that you're sitting here in a chair today. I really I want to do this very fast, so don't try to write all these things down. If you want, you can listen to it online later and stop, pause, stop, pause, all that. 
and write them all down. But I really want you to check this out. A.D. 30, Jesus died and rose again and sent the Holy Spirit. A.D. 31, Stephen became the first martyr, and three years later, Saul became Paul. The book of Acts, the rest of it happens, which is what we will see in coming weeks. A.D. 80, the gospel was heard in France. A.D. 100, it was heard in Algeria and Sri Lanka. A.D. 150, Portugal and Morocco received the gospel. A.D. 174, Austria and Switzerland. A.D. 328, all the way down in Ethiopia had heard the gospel. A.D. 595, Augustine was sent to England where they saw 10,000 baptisms in one year. I want you to really listen to what I'm saying. 10,000 baptisms in a year's time. Five, uh, AD 635, missionaries were sent to China. AD 1200, skipping way ahead, the Bible is already in 22 different languages. Uh, AD 1491, the first church was found in the Congo. Between 1531 and 1550, the whole of South America was reached with the gospel. The 1700s saw the Great Awakening take place. 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention, which we are kind of a part of, was founded. And since then, they have planted over 46 thousand churches they have sent through the imb which started that same year almost six thousand missionaries into the field and that number and both of those is ever ever growing in 1957 hillview heights church was one of those 46,000 churches that were planted by the southern baptist convention and in 2002 they hired a man or at that time a boy named eric baker in 2011, he was called to Horizon Church in Arizona. In 2013, he moved back and planted Mission Church, and that is where we all sit today. God is unstoppable. There is persecution through every single one of those things, including Mission Church, and God is unstoppable. It is His Spirit building the church. It is not about us. Has anyone been to all of those places? I didn't think so, but guess who has? The Holy Spirit leading those men and women, guiding them, convicting hearts. And do you think that any single one of those people involved in that timeline is more capable than you? If you're sitting there thinking, yeah, but it was Augustine. I've heard about him. He is a big man of God. It was Paul. Then you're missing the point. Those people were nobody. They were absolutely nobodies until the Holy Spirit and that is the spirit that we have here today it is the same unstoppable spirit that was in them that was in us so I implore you I beg you I beg me I beg Pastor Eric I beg everyone to go be a witness of this unstoppable God tell people what Jesus has done because he is unstoppable and he is going to build this church, but more importantly, His global church. Pray with me. Father, we thank You. We thank You for being nobodies because we...